welcome to another edition of the Bond Daft Podcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by my usual fellow Bond aficionados, Steve McCall. Hello. Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry, and Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to you all as well, actually. Merry Christmas, yes. <laughs> and, of course, Francis Murphy. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> yes we're recording this uh three days after christmas yep. so uh yes we're rounding out uh 2019 with a bond daft film i'm sure this film is full of christmas joy we are going to be talking about the man with the golden gun we should have saved on our majesties and made that the christmas film because that's the most christmasy of the bond films golden gun actually it's the most um like exotic kind of hot holiday location that you would get out of all of them. It's in Thailand. It's just so unchristmassy. But Bond, Christmas is a time for watching Bond films. Like I said, I've watched two already the past few days. That's right. You were just telling us off air. You've watched Die Another Day. And what was the other one? Never Say Never Again for the second time. God, never say never again. Ever. I'm about to start editing that podcast. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a film. I can say that about the film it's <laughs> yeah let's send some emails to and to tell them to hurry up yeah no. come on I, I, I will that's that's a, a new year's resolution is to have a weekly schedule or two weekly schedule bi-weekly uh for the podcast in a more uh organized fashion and uh yeah let's let's get into this one is anything is there anything been doing anything interesting over the christmas break that's remotely bond like nothing fran what have you been doing well, nothing. Actually, nothing very exciting, to be it honest. wouldn't like a very good film with it. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be the title, Nothing Very Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, just, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, at, at Christmas, it's more New Year that you start going out and doing things, isn't it? Mm, so okay. Christmas is kind of just family and food, really. Well, that is pretty much all I've been doing. So, yeah, I can't really, can't really argue with that. Okay, um... Before we kickstart uh, talking about the setup for this film and the production and things like that and the plot, um, there's just a recent news, uh, quite sad news actually, uh, Claudine Auger, uh, she has just passed away. Um, she was, Fran, you probably won't remember because you haven't seen the film when we watched it. She was the, uh, played Domino in Thunderball. So just a, a very, very quick, brief sort of uh, tribute to her, just to, to say that that was, that was a shame. She lived to, what was it, 78, I think? Yeah, it's at least well into her 70s, I think. Yeah, yeah. so um, she was... I, I mean, I'd said on the podcast I really liked um, her scene with Connery on, on the, the beach. Um, I thought it was quite a heartfelt kind of um, moment in, in a Bond film, which was the first that I've seen the films had done that. Where She'd been just told that her brother in the film had passed away, and it was just a, it was a kind of a sombre... And it was a well played moment, and I actually I think I gave the credit to her in that scene. Um, so that's one of the things that I remembered uh, from her performance. Um, but yeah, so uh, Claudine Auger, uh, just very sad news. Is there anything? Did, did you find out what age she was? Just to confirm, she that? was seventy eight when she died. Yeah, seventy eight. Oh, um, right. Just reading the tribute and how obviously at the time Bond girls were seen as kind of the the bit of nice, if you like, in the film. But she apparently she said quite famously or quite. Um, openly that she took the role really really seriously and i think when we watched that did come across because we, we did praise her performance yeah quite yes a lot. Definitely. exactly and that it was that she was playing a character and and more and not just yeah you know, the sort of 
previously defined Bond girl, but she was playing a character in the film. That's what to me that's what came across. So yeah, she had a character with an interesting backstory, and she was the first of the the Bond girls that she was the first of the sort of kept woman, the mistress of the megalomaniac villain, and so she must her performance must have been very influential in, in the latter films. And she'd get some great scenes and great dialogue with Connery in particular. Yep, yep. Okay, um, so uh, kind of sort of tribute to, to Claudine Auger. Let's now talk about The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, Gordon, I've just done a little reading on this film. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not a visual uh, medium, so unfortunately nobody saw your little gesture of a gun firing. Um, uh, yes, this film came out in 1974 it's 12 years after the original film it's the ninth film uh been released under eon productions it's also the last film that is co-produced with harry saltzman and cubby broccoli right bef- after this film was released i um, i don't know if it was a result of it was it wasn't it was a su- commercial success but not as big as expected as the bond films had been it is now still ranked fourth lowest of the bond films um he had rising debts and sold his shares to broccoli who retained the rights entirely so this is obviously roger moore's second film and this film as far as i'm aware from reading about the production on this film this one leans more into the comedy element uh Living Let Die had it already. It's Guy Hamilton directing again. This is his last James Bond film. And this one certainly leans into the comedy more than Living Let Die. And I think this one might represent some of what Moore really encompassed in his Bond era. That sort of tongue-in-cheek, sort of sardonic kind of wit that the Bond films had around this era. There's some real top iconic scenes in this film even though it's not one of the most popular Bond films, one of the least popular Bond films, there's some real iconic scenes especially for Roger's era that he he was always widely remembered for and plot wise um, a bit again a bit different from the book Ian Fleming came up with the genesis of this assassin, this mysterious assassin Francisco Scaramanga and the plot revolves around Bond is... Now, $7 million was the budget for this film. Late 1974, I think we discovered, wasn't it? About December 74 it came out. Plot-wise, this was in the middle of the, the energy crisis across the world, and I think it revolved around... I don't know a lot about it, but the the Arab countries, um, they had put, like, an, um, there was an embargo on oil export, and there was a big energy crisis everywhere. That's the context of, like, the 1973 period, or 74, when all the filming was made. And um, Bond is, I think he's following the work of some scientist who's, you know, coming up with some way of, like, harnessing the, the power of the sun and potentially selling it to to world powers I suppose I mean, but he's mysterious. that's incredibly progressive that's almost like green energy isn't it yeah I know we were talking about I, we mentioned this earlier it's, it was the <laughs> so whole we should oil be supporting the villain that... <laughs> solar energy but here's the, the guy for president yeah. the, the thing is um, it turns out um, this mysterious guy Scaramanga suddenly becomes intertwined in all this but basically Bond is trying to go on with um, with this mission when all of a sudden it's revealed he's the, the target of assassination by Francisco Scaramanga and MI6 have absolutely nothing to go on and 
M basically lets Bond go off unofficially to find Scaramanga before Scaramanga finds him. And uh, a quick quick rundown of the cast. We've got we've got Sir Rog back for his second film's Bond. We've got Sir Christopher Lee as Scaramanga, one generally one of the the most uh, iconic Bond villains of all time. We've also got also probably one of the most iconic actors of all time. Yeah, yeah. What well, honestly and the the stuff that guy did just his life his, well, he was, like he was a war hero. Yeah. He I mean, I could go on all day about Christopher Lee and well, he, just the amazing things he saw and spy did. stuff. He he wasn't he he up to his death. He, he uh, interviewers used to ask him, "What did you do in the war?" And he said, "Well, you know, I can't tell. Like he's got to take it to his grave and all that kind of thing." So yeah. I think he was doing stuff. He was actually probably behaving in a similar way to Bond does. You really got to admire that. Sorry, I think Steve. he was uh, also friends with. Um, he was the cousin. He was a cousin. Was, uh, cousin. Ian Fleming's cousin. That's what makes it all. <laughs> this this gives uh, an extra kind of poignancy to this film, and uh, you've also you've got Maud Adams as he's um she so she's Scaramanga's um mistress, and another you know one of the the kind of kept women as it were, um and she went on to play Octopussy in the, the film of the same oh, name yeah. and I think she also had like a an extra in one of the later films after that I'm sure I, I think I read I think that's highly techni- debated oh really I, that, oh, that right. thing of you to it, kill it, it, it's listed uh, in Wikipedia that she appeared yeah. in three films well, by the way I'm just really interested like maybe it's my ignorance here but I'm um, like what is a kept woman what is it what is it I've just not really have you heard that term before Steve I've heard it, but I've never really thought about the, what the meaning is. I presume you mean a, a kind of wife or spouse that is in some way kind of, if not trapped, then severely restricted? Like trapped in that lifestyle, um, you know, married to this kind of rich supervillain who, um, you know, makes it very difficult for them to leave and they, they, they maybe feel trapped. And I think that's part of... Um, that does come into the plot here. Her feeling stuck in this lifestyle with Scaramanga, who is an obsession with just one thing. And uh, the, and I should also sorry, I was going to mention quickly Brett Eklund, who has become quite a major star in the that period. Uh, who's also in the Wicker Man, various other things. Uh, she plays Mary Goodnight, who's the uh, like the MI six contact the Bond has to work with. And then we've got her Vilishes as Nick Knack, Scaramanga's little man servant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was trying to pronou- read his name and sort of learn how to pronounce it. So I'm glad you were saying it because I didn't read that. <laughs> I, don't from... think, I don't know if I got it right, but it sounds like you got it right. From um... so yeah, there's a lot of iconic, you know, images from this film. The, the, the Golden Gun is obviously one of the most famous props from the Bond. The, the films and uh, Scaramanga I think is one of those ones that you know in computer games they always try and get a Scaramanga in there and things like that so it's it's, it's certainly one that's you know the, the, in the pantheon of the Bond films this has a lot of the elements that they were iconic as well um, so I'm intrigued from the production side of things this film didn't have Ken Adam who did a lot of the sets for those early films he did all the the volcano set and you'll have twice and um, sort of Blofeld's other um, vel- uh, kind of layers and things like that. I think it's Sid Kane that came, who's usually the one that replaced him in the other films. I think he did um, uh, from Russia with Love, which had that that chess arena sequence at the start. He did that, which looked great. Um, and on Her Majesty's Secret Service, um, John Barry returned for the soundtrack. Although controversially, he has said this is one of his least 
liked soundtracks uh this is one that he's not as big a fan of as the other ones so i'm intrigued to see what 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 it is about that that isn't quite as fitting or whatever um guy hamilton the director has also said this is his least favorite of his films that he did and kind of regretted doing it and the writer tom mankiewicz had uh him and guy hamilton i think had issues when they were coming up with ideas for the film i think tom mankiewicz the american uh, writer who did the previous two films he had said that he struggled with i think writer's block and think coming up with ideas for the film he was burnt out with it so a few issues there at the start of the production that led into the film but um, they got richard maybaum back who was the writer for the first four or five james bond films um so you know some re- returning faces in the crew as well uh, did we mention it's the third film in a row with guy hamilton directing as well yeah so it's his fourth film altogether his last film but third in a row and guy hamilton's style you know it, it's very it's so what's the, is it irreverent is the is the word you would use it's that sort of stylistic flourish that he has it's it's style over plot sense in some cases but usually it's it's funny and things like that the bond films certainly goldfinger was it was the main one that it worked the best and live it like die i think as well so I'm, I'm intrigued to see how what's uh how this one fares and q's back, Good Q's back. of course he wasn't in living like Die, was he yeah that's right and you Good to see him back yeah yeah i'm looking forward to that i'm assuming obviously bernard lee and yeah bernard lee uh los maxwell's is miss money penny so yep. a few returning cast members excellent okay we're gonna go now and watch the man with the golden gun bye-bye and we are back from watching the man with the golden gun gordon has commented he's got his golden beer so <laughs> we are all set to go uh, what do we think about this one, gents? Steve, you're, you remembered actually halfway through this film that you'd actually had seen this film This before. is, I had the weirdest sense of deja vu about maybe a third of the, in fact, maybe even before that, maybe a quarter of the way in. I was sitting there going, I've seen this. And then throughout the film, I thought maybe I've seen a clip of it, but no, I, it turns out I had seen it. So I was talking absolute rubbish before when I said I hadn't. It was, it was good. It's, I think it's by far the most linear film in that there was... It was straightforward, start to finish, exactly the same story. You followed it right the way through. There weren't any side stories or distractions. There was, I, apart from possibly <laughs> J.W. Pepper, which I'm sure we'll come to. Yeah. Beyond that, it was very straightforward. You know at the start what was happening? It followed through and then ended that way. Uh, was it a fun film to you, Steve? Like, is it? Would you say you enjoyed it? It's... And maybe nothing perhaps blew me away about it. It was it was a good film. It was easy to follow and it was relatively enjoyable. Christopher Lee's Scaramanga is by far the best Bond villain I've seen. I really, really enjoyed his performance. On the other hand, Goodnight is possible. I don't know if she... Would you call her... I know she was a CIA operative, so whether or not she's a, a Bond girl as such, I don't know. But she was... Well, I think f- in, the, in the sense she is a Bond girl in the sense that she's a glamorous model that was yeah, in an yes. acting role in the film, but as a character, I mean, I know you're going to go into it, but she's not great. She is by far the worst played Bond girl. And I don't think it was down to... Was that... Was Brett, that Brett Eklund? Brett, it was Brett Eklund. I don't think it was her as an actress. I think it was the way it was written. But she was played, and we'll come into this, I'm sure, but she was played as an idiot. And I, I just, I really didn't like it. I didn't yeah. think it worked. I'm in complete agreement. I'll go into that in a minute. Uh, but yeah, so overall, flawed 
some enjoyable moments, but not. It's the a best. very middling film. This one, yeah. nothing blew me away. Uh, yeah. Okay, Gordon, your uh, take on this after obviously you've seen it a fair few times. I'm uh, gonna assume. Yeah, quite a lot. Interesting. Just to add to that, Steve uh, Mary Goodnight was a recurring character in a few of the books, not a big part, but. I think it was a reimagining of a character just simply with the same name for this film. She was actually... Bond had a secretary in the same way as M had a secretary who was Miss Moneypenny. Bond had his own office in the books and Mary Goodnight was his secretary, but it was kind of a reimagination of the character. And I, I actually, I can totally go along with what you said about that about that particular character, Steve, but um, no, for me, it's always been a fun and enjoyable film. Again, I totally agree. There's There's quite a few flaws for me. The what really became apparent this time to me after seeing a lot is the the final third that sort of redeemed itself. There's quite a a daft midsection to the film. It kind of goes off the rails a bit too much of the the kung fu and the you know the silliness emerging, but it really redeems itself. I think the final third, Christopher Lee, is just amazing. I think in this film, and I think it it's like it just culminates and at the start of the film, you know, when it becomes apparent that. Scaramanga targets Bond or you're meant to imagine that he's like targeted Bond for assassination you just kind of envisage this duel between it's like Bond and his alter ego Bond and Scaramanga just imagine them in a one-on-one duel you know Bond's meant to be the best but he's he's kind of the best at what he does and just it it culminates in what you've been you're kind of hoping for the whole film Bond and Scaramanga in this one-on-one duel at the end of the film which that, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the GoldenEye deathmatches, Scaramanga's big funhouse, which is, like, tailored for him to, you know, follow his obsession with, you know, bond his obsession with, with killing people. It's It culminates, and it's just a, it's a very good end, I think. Yeah. You know, the final act of the film, for me, yep. really makes it, man. Okay, Fran, your first take on The Man with the Golden Gun. Well, I think it was a, uh, an enjoyable film to watch. I think it was replete with the insanity that we're used to um with well maybe more more so than some of the other films that we've seen so far uh, with what steve said about goodnight being i mean you know who, male or female i don't think anybody who behaved that way would have been recruited by <laughs> the agency yeah. do you know what i mean like clearly incompetent like an incompetent person you know um although i quite liked her i, I, I think you know but i still don't think it's believable she would have been that she it doesn't look like someone has been put through rigorous training, you know. Um, also, the idea that um, I mean, they, I don't think they focused enough on Scaramanga's obsession with the um, trying to find uh, more and more potent ways to kill someone and challenge. Like I think that would have been more interesting if we'd seen more of that. Um, some of the characters in it, I mean, even down to that that uh, member of staff in the hotel who. Um, opened the door and exclaimed when Bond said it was going to be a surprise. He was like, "Oh, a surprise!" and walked off. I think there was kind of laziness with with the writing in the sense of it was a little bit too obvious. If, does that make sense? It was kind of it, or strange, like there was something not quite right about it. Also, um, when we find out that Scaramanga has stolen this solar cell and has developed um, infrastructure to actually offer to the world's governments at a, a price. I I just thought to myself, well, why didn't why why doesn't the British government just pay him and get the get the technology? Finally, for insanity, the whole um out, outpost, I suppose you might call it, on the boat, the the sunken boat, just inexplicable. 
like that that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get at. There's a lot of the movie that's quite inexplicable and it runs through all of those different things I've mentioned. Um I don't know if it took away from the enjoyment of the film. I I, I think maybe it was another case of I found it amusing for the wrong reason <clears throat> and yeah. a charming kind of way, but I I didn't it wasn't what the filmmakers intended. I wonder if the writers have got to a point where they've thought, you know what, we can chuck whatever we want into these Bond films and the audience watching we just go, oh, it's Bond, it's what happens, it's what they do. Yeah. And the thing is, you'll notice, um, or you, you may have heard after this film, I think the producers of the film had to have a real reevaluation of Bond and I think it resulted in quite a big change, you know, three years later with Spy Who Loved Me because of maybe the sort of mixed reception this film got, negative reception from a lot of quarters. Yeah, I mean, I can see why in some ways. Um, some of it has dated purely from the point of view of us watching it and there's a jingle that would come on here. Oh, right, okay, yes. Uh, the uh, more Bond is dated. Well, I, think we'll, I think we'll talk about that in more specific detail a bit later on. This is my just first impressions. Do but... we leave like, a 10 second gap? Just I, no. <laughs> I can insert it anyway. Um, and uh... That sounded so seedy. <laughs> yeah. I've been watching <laughs> Man of the Golden Gun, and it's. I mean, that's something you notice about that film. It's, it's... it's full of innuendo and. Yeah, I mean, like talking about that, the, the the theme song itself is is kind of lazy and sort of puerile and very literal with the lyrics. Um, little things like that bug me. Steve, you talked about um, Mary Goodnight's character. That's one of the main things that I really oh, just find so irritating. Um, the the way that she's played, but mostly it's the way she's written um, as this absolute dunce. Um, she shouldn't be it. Uh, in this situation and um, I just I find that she's meant to be the comic comedic foil I suppose in the scenario but it's all at her expense but it's also it's really some of the when Bond is sleeping with another character <laughs> yeah. yeah well I think we'll, we'll actually we'll, we'll get to it I'll, I'll leave it at that I don't know just, I, can we, why, don't we, just, why don't we just quickly talk about it right okay let's get out of the way this this film is uh, is dated and we'll, we'll uh, play what the Bond is dated the... theme Bond is dated Bond is dated, sexist, misogynist, he don't care. Bond is dated, license to offend. Okay, yeah, the Bond is dated. That wonderful theme has just played. The thing is, though, I don't know if that's... I don't know... I, we still have to have the theme played there, right? But I, I'm not sure this is an example of Bond is dated because I saw a very similar scene in a much more recent film. But I think it's it's more... like Say we had a jingle for horribly awkward and inappropriate. That would be suitable for this in the sense that like locking a woman in a cupboard or a guy or anyone while you sleep with someone else when that person fancies you is one of the worst things you could probably do to somebody. Do you I know think what I mean? it's more dated actually from the point of view of just bad comedy. Like I didn't find that funny. I just thought it was I don't know if comedic tastes have changed. That happens. Um our style of humour is so much different from the style of humour of the seventies, the sixties. And this to me though. might have been funny for the audience at the time. Didn't make me laugh. I don't remember any of us laughing at this. We were all a bit right. aghast. No. I know, but it but it came up again and I'm I'm I I think it's well yeah it's dated humour I suppose. That's but what what's interested is that it came up in a film only 10 years ago I wish I could remember the name of the film but I remember feeling the same way watching it it wasn't comedy though in that film I think it was presented as a terrible thing but if that makes me, sense this is, this is Tom Mankiewicz and Guy Hamilton and a little of Richard Maybaum who was back for this one as well who did the original Bond uh, screenplays they have concocted these scenarios where this character um, Mary Goodnight 
she has clearly there's some chemistry with her and Bond, and they they flirt, and it, lo- it leads to a scene where they're finally going to sleep together, and it means a lot to her. She's very um, happy about it and things like that. And then the other character, who is Scaramanga's mistress um, or girlfriend, uh, she comes in to the to the room, the hotel room, and Mary Goodnight is. Exp- she's first of all just hidden underneath the duvet, and is meant to just play along that she's not there and Bond is talking to um, Maud Adams' character and then they get it on and it's, you know, at this point Mary Goodnight's now hidden in the cupboard and it's just, I just found it seedy these are writers, that male writers have written this it's meant to be, she's meant to be laughed at and we're meant to kind of it's all about her her expense, I just I just feel uncomfortable. It's the look of utter disappointment on her face as well once she's shoved into the cupboard that kind of sort of nails at home how gutted she actually is and I mean I imagine audiences in the 70s were probably roaring at this but <laughs> we do watch and go hang on that's a bit the thing is like do you remember as it was happening I was saying well why didn't Bond just send her out the room I mean that would have been the decent like say Bond had to sleep with um, Scaramanga's girlfriend for the mission right did he have to I know but okay <laughs> let's assume that that's what the writers were going for right so the writers are going for the idea that Bond is is basically seducing Scaramanga's girlfriend in order to build that rapport to carry on as 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 is kind of Bond's modus operandi through all the films we've seen so far. Why put Goodnight in the cupboard? Why not send her and say, right, I'll 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 contact you later on, do you know what I mean? She presumably had her own room in the hotel because uh-huh, she was at one point. Plot, plot again has been sidelined by Guy Hamilton for the comedic element of it's funny because he's so attractive to all these women he has one want to sleep with them that if she'll hide in a cupboard another one will sleep with them because of the you know well, information it's just that, it's, that's Guy Hamilton's style I would have hoped that the audiences at the time would have um, been looked at it and been like oh that's not great but well maybe that's maybe the the fact that it wasn't as big a success would like it. It, I mean there must have been a lot of couples going to see the film Imagine sitting with your wife and watching that and think, uh, your wife's going to be sitting there. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I can't imagine it would have gone... I, I can't imagine it would have landed properly with a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? I, I think know. the front door is actually down that corridor. So if uh, if uh, Miss Anders has gone to the bathroom, would she not hear Miss Goodnight tiptoeing down the hallway? Or Bond could maybe like just say, oh, that was me just going to lock the door or yeah. something. I, don't I think know. he might have just channeled Guy Hamilton. <laughs> in the writer's room there that's probably what he would have uh, said I was thinking does he have time to actually get her out of the room I don't yeah, know I feel like because yeah. the door's the door's not in the that guy room, Hamilton the representative the <laughs> <laughs> guy <laughs> Hamilton like, seance long lost um, yeah I mean grandson. aside from that uh, while we're on where it has dated then is there anything else that seems screamed out I mean that was to me the most obvious one other than just the sort of well, biz- abysmal treatment of the, the Hollywood. Well, actually, character. see, see, good night. I don't. I, and again, I said this in the last one. Like, I've I've taken a little bit more of a hard line on this whole. Um, uh, if a female character is portrayed as stupid, it's inherently it's, bad. It's not that, I, but I, I, because the male character Sheriff Pepper is yeah, just as stupid. Exactly. It's nothing to so do it's with not, that. Yeah, it's not that. I think the I think the problem is that it's just the the unrealistic. Like, it's not realistic that someone. I mean, say it was. Um, uh, Felix Leiter and he was that stupid you'd be looking at him thinking why would the CIA have recruited yes, someone like that they've yeah. obviously failed their training blah 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 right so I think it's unrealistic I yeah. don't I have no problem with the way they've portrayed Goodnight being stupid I, I just have a problem that she works as an agent I think the, there was a opportunity miss because like I said she was an established character in the novels like there was room for some kind of backstory 
they just kind of made her dumb for the sake of it. Whereas, exactly. like Miss Anders had a really quite a strong backstory. You know, you could tell she she wasn't happy with Scaramanga and what he did, and even um, you know, there, there's a few characters with you know you know good backstories in that film. I think there was you know there was an opportunity missed there with with Mary Goodnight. I think the film would be unfortunately better off without her character in it, just because of how unpleasant I felt or, some of that treatment was, and also. Sheriff Pepper. I just oh, say, say we'll need to talk about that. Been written more like um, what was her what was her name in Honor Majesties? What was she called again? Tracy. Uh-huh. Say say good night. It was more like that. That would have been better. I mean, uh, I think yes, I, all of them. I mean, the problem was with this film had the trope again. Female is captured. She's the d- d- damsel in distress. The other trope is they also put her. Uh, the villain puts her in a very revealing bikini just to saunter around. Yep. It's yep. All, all those tropes from these Bond films again. That is what these films were at well, the time. Bond is dated right yeah, there. Yeah. Straight Towards down the, the end, the the way it all went wrong is because her arse hit the master switch button <laughs> oh in slow God. motion. I I and uh, I was so bad. That was so. Um, I know, I, Austin Powers, wasn't it? Yes, Austin that's Powers that's where it went. Do when they were probably <laughs> they must have watched all these films and like, we need to get that in there. Like oh, so. Ridiculous. And there was also like just I don't know. I mean, I think it is a, a in some very key scenes and with one particular character it's dated big time I think in other ways I think what's frustrating about it is it could have been one of the very best Bond films if they just focused on other parts if they'd maybe cleaned it up a bit like I would have I would have I don't want to say you could remove Goodnight as a character and it would be a better film. I think if she'd been presented more like, say, a Felix Leiter type of character. Exactly. Yes, well, yes. Yes, that's another way to do it. Um, not have her just be the complete comedic silly foil. I mean, slapstick humour is different. There's other kinds of humour they could have done with her. They could have had a, a sort of an argumentative thing between her and Bond. It's like Leia and Han Solo in Star Wars. And that would be funny. To me, my issue is the comedy of this film is is just... It undercuts so much of what makes could have made this film really good. Uh, we'll get to it, but the stunt chase uh, car sequence with that amazing stunt was completely ruined by John Barrio, unfortunately, putting in that slide whistle. That sound effect um, was yes. So to me, this is... This, uh, Bond is dated. This is more about... And to me, really, it's about the comedy of this film. It's been it was, it's kind of ruined it a little. That, that killed it. I mean, let's make no mistake, that was a real stunt. That was a real car. Incredible. A real bridge. You know, they took time to, you know, examine all the angles and you know, probably weather and all that stuff. And, you know, they did it in one take as well. They did it in one take. It's incredible. And, you know, uh, that's that's the thing. I keep going back to it in those days. You know, these these were stunts done for real. There was no CGI. It was yeah. such a good stunt. And, yeah, that sound effect, you know, you know didn't... What, and this is the there. one where the car does a full 360 in midair, having yeah. gone off a ramp at a particular angle and lands perfectly. Do you know what it was like? It was like... It was like a carry-on movie in some parts. There were elements of carry-on, actually. That, like, um, with some of the musical choices, um, the tone, this, the pepper scenes, the way that Goodnight was. Goodnight would have been, Goodnight would have been a carry-on character, really, mm-hmm. if you think about it. You know, sort of, you know, op- opening the, the boot and looking out when it, the, the car is flying through the air. I mean, that was, that was from a carry, that could have been from a carry-on movie. One of the few sort of strengths is, like, she found a way to open the boot, but the fact she didn't know they were in mid-air. It's little things like that. I mean, that's just, uh, yeah. Uh, let's move on from her, because we don't want to spend all, all the time on that. I think we've kind of made it quite clear, especially me, that was my main gripe with this film is, is, is mostly that comedy and how, how she was portrayed and written. I think it's 
it's pretty poor. Um, uh, but what do you think, though, of the whole um, the government could have just paid Scaramanga to put the infrastructure in place? Right, so the actual plot then? I mean, don't you think that that's a massive, enormous flaw? The government wouldn't give money to a villain or a lawless person, would they? What kind of, <laughs> what kind of assumption are you making about a, don't a you government, work for BBC particularly Steve? the British government? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right about this all the time. <laughs> I think uh, Scaramanga would have had to get in contact with the government first because nobody knew who he was, what he looked like, knew nothing about him. So that's a whole kind of hole in itself. Apart from the third nipple, which everyone knows I mean, about. I mean, you've got to track him down. That can't be many. Though, the British government wanted to get the battery so that they could do that research, right? And they could then use it, use it basically, right? So let's think about this. They could have saved a lot of money if they had engaged with Scaramanga, who obviously was you know, a bit of a psycho, right? But, you know, as Steve has said, governments around the world are doing business with strange people all the time, right? Because they kind of have to, or because, you know, they because it's in their interest to get that sort of infrastructure or the energy they need or whatever they have to get. I really think it's mad that M wouldn't... Like, say Bond had reported in and said, well, I've been there at the island and, you know, he's got this idea to sell it to the governments of the world and they can franchise it out. I think M, as a pragmatist, would have said, well, how much is he asking for? I don't, yeah, that, no, I know there's no, but there was no time for that because there was no way for Bond to get into contact because he was kind of held captive by Scaramanga. Well, M was surely able to get in contact with him on that boat. Yeah, 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 so I know, that's, I mean, yeah, that's all the years I've seen this film, I find it incredible that M was just able to make sudden contact with Bond. It's like he knew he would be on the, the yacht at that time. Oh, well, no. it's because he's always on a boat at the end of the film, so M knew. <laughs> He Aye. found a way to, to contact him. He thought Bond will be Bond will be in bed with a woman on a boat. Right. Let's uh, let's start from the start. Well, not start from the start. We're twenty minutes in. Let's but, start from the end. Let's uh, <laughs> yeah yeah. So we've covered all re- already. Let's take um. So the start then the funhouse stuff then the, the scan of manga. You know that intro pre-title sequence was quite interesting. Really wasn't good. It? Really I good. I like that as a setup actually. And it for once is the first time I've said this is a villain's layer after what eight films now that actually makes sense. And it, it, obviously you have to get to the end of the film before it makes sense. But that whole sequence where he's obviously it's where you first get this idea that Scaramanga is a kind of gambling man and will do this kind of one-on-one duels thing. Where he's obviously hired someone to come in and sort of have a shot at either killing Bond or whether or not it's someone who could kill him because he gets given half the money by Knickknack and is then told you'll get the other half at the end, which is presumably if he'd got through this whole funhouse scenario without being killed. There's this interesting side story that Knickknack wants all for himself and it's kind of, it's like Scaramanga knows that you know when he killed the gangster in the pre-title sequence he says to Nick Naka you'll not get me yet or something like that I mean yeah. visually as a, as a set it was phenomenal it as well it was um, brilliant and yeah. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe that that wasn't a Ken Adam set actually because I mean predominantly the, those kind of sets have always been a sort of Ken, a- Ken Adam who's you know the, the, he was the volcano set from You Only Live Twice as I mentioned earlier this one wasn't I think it was Sid Kane um, and again I, I loved it it was this felt very Bondian um, but also fresh as well at the same time so that was a really luscious kind of cool looking set what's um, quite interesting is that for once um, the the Bond villain having an elaborate setup that's overly complicated to deal with Bond makes sense. Yeah. Because Scaramanga actually does want to give Bond a chance in order yeah. for him to have some sort of fight. Um, to go back to the set side of things, the actual set for the the battery room or whatever that 
you might want to call it that Scaramanga had was very similar to Dr. Noselayer, wasn't it? Yeah, I like that. It felt like a callback, and I don't know if I mentioned it. I think um, Fleming had obviously been cousins with Christopher Lee. He had actually once in conversation said, you should totally play Dr. No. And then I think Lee had approached them, but after it had already been, uh, they've already cast... um, Joseph Wiseman. Joseph Wiseman, that was it. Um, He wanted no coward. Christopher Lee had said, oh, Fleming's just always got a forgetful memory sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, that was, but yeah. So it's funny to think of these people. Roger Moore was even circling around Doctor No at the time as well. Could you imagine? So they sort of Roger th- Moore as Doctor No. Oh no, Roger Moore and as and James Bond as Doctor No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was it was great. The great sets, I like that. Um, and can I just say, touching the points that I think Fran was making there, I think um, the biggest tribute I could pay this film was just the the absolute obsessiveness. Everything for Scaramanga came down to this duel with him and Bond. He was obsessed with Bond. Miss Anders even said when Bond and Bond and her were together in the hotel room, she says he talks about you all the time. She's like, even as a bit of a likeness of you. And the fact he actually has this waxwork of Bond in his own sort of training arena, they went all that trouble, you know, to get that, that bill. And, you know, the, I think, like, he... he I got the impression the gangster at the start of the film was there as a sort of training scenario for mm. him. Yeah. You know, that's what he lives for. He only needs one bullet. It all came down to this big sort of duel between him and Bond. He wants to pit himself against the best. It's like, and I like the fact that Bond can has a reputation. He knows who Bond is. Bond works in the Secret Service world, but he knows who Bond is. He's like, this is a, he says to Bond at dinner, you know, this is a, a clash between titans, you know. The dialogue is really we are the best. Yeah, (laughs) and 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 that's I don't. That's why this film. You said it's felt. You think the third, last third of this film, unlike most Bond films, which you've said usually your attention wavers in the last. Exactly, this film's this last third was probably the best because it was down to just Bond and Scaramanga, and Scaramanga to me is the strength of this film. Exactly, absolutely. And I think honestly, with a tidy up, I think if they if they'd given it a second pass with the writing, I think. It would have been much, much better if the film got rid of a lot of the bump for the Kung Fu and the pep- Sergeant Pepper, uh, uh, Sheriff Pepper. Sorry, <laughs> that again. That again, yeah. Come on, it's an easy mistake to make. Um, and all that kind of thing, just get rid of that from the middle of the film, um, uh, reduce and tighten up Goodnight's character and focus on Scaramanga's obsession and go into that. There was a scene where he was talking about his backstory and uh, Gordon, I think you'd mentioned to me because I'd, I'd nipped out for a second, about how he'd um he'd worked he'd worked in the circus when he was younger mm-hmm. and he'd seen an animal an elephant being mistreated and he killed the handler and that's how he discovered his addiction to killing, and I think if they'd really dived into that and maybe we had a a bit more of an exploration of Scaramanga and Bond and the the duel was a bit longer as well the duel yeah. wasn't long enough yeah. either it was a bit of a letdown actually I, I that yeah interesting I, I i wouldn't say it wasn't long enough i, I felt it, it went on long enough i think well there was a bit too much of the university tour yeah they and, gave it given a lot of yeah, sort of legitimate tour of the premises a new yeah. of and i got man. to say i got to say man see that the whole you were talking about the whole layer is even similar to dr nose hugely and all that he had he basically had two members of staff to man this entire thing you know it's basically like a solar power station Two guys. I mean, who's making the meals first and foremost? Like him, <laughs> him and him and Bond and Goodnight of this big banquet. So you got to assume Nick Knack is the guy that's made all that, and he, you know, he must be quite a good cook to like well, get all the times right and, and all Nick-Nack that. Looks after him to Bond, doesn't yeah. He? But you know, you look at this whole big installation and this this guy. I think he says Kra 
is the guy the guy who who Goodnight knocks out into the pool. You know, it's like what if one bit of equipment goes wrong? Is this guy a master electrician? Is he you know, is he can he cook if knickknacks ill? Can he you know <laughs> does he know what can he does is this the guy that you know what what is the plants and is this the guy that orders all the food and you know, because they stay in this little isolated island which makes it even more incredible, you know. So these two guys are, you know, he makes he actually says Kralix after everything. How can how can he look after everything? Well he's so concentrated on the job that he never speaks. He never says a single word. This guy must have when he's dying, he screams. This guy must have had some amount of training and sore power and you know just (laughs) science in general, just to just to what if there's a fault? What if there's a fault and you know the the actual these kind of early computers? What if there's a fault? Does he know exactly what to do? Does he phone a guy in the mainland and for someone who has that much responsibility, it's alarmingly how easy he was distracted though with the Holly Goodnight's character trying to harass her. Um, That one wee part of the the actual walk where there's a bit of fence missing but every other part of the walkway yeah. is fenced off I found a little yeah. absurd especially given the fact that someone falling into that thing would destroy the entire island yeah. so health and safety really missed out there I mean they, they made a mistake by not fencing that one specific part they put a sign though in yeah, the wrong place and no one can see it the wrong way, yeah. <laughs> one of you guys also mentioned that Scaramanga in fairness he is quite a hands on villain I agree with you you know, he's he, so he doesn't have some henchman that kills people for him. He's the man. He is a trained killer. Yep. He used to work for the KGB. He 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 doesn't have some other person do his dirty work. Um, but like you said, he's like it, almost. We'll go back to the micromanagement style of um, like Telly Savalas's Blofeld of um, of Tiger Tanaka. I was trying to remember his name there. You know, he does he does everything himself. You know, aye. Like I think, if you look at the villains from previously, it's obviously the, the different versions of. I'm sorry. Do you know what I was hinting? I was, I was thinking also of high fat. You know, it's like Bond approaches high fat. It's big complex, and Bond's walking along the side of the pool, and you think high fat would have like you know some sort of security guard, but it's actually the owner of the entire complex walks down and says. What are you doing here, Gary? You think that was like a security guard's job? But high fat's walking along in his yeah. expensive suit, just like it's weird. telling Bond off. And what's what's also weird is that the next time Bond goes near high fat, there's a weird circus of security. That time, yeah, the two sumo wrestlers, yeah, yeah. all sort of like pretended to be statues and all this kind of thing. I mean, it's just, I mean, that whole section, I think, I, that's again, that's something I would have just sliced straight out of the film. Uh, yeah, he also had. Um... Chumi swimming naked in the pool, which yeah. you could see a lot of. Yeah, you know, yeah. actually, to be honest, the Blu-ray, movie, yeah, the Blu-ray compared to the <laughs> original I mean, version. Honestly, I... like you could see. You, I mean, I was watching that thinking, "My goodness, you really, you know, this is leaving nothing to the imagination here." And it it, it made no sense. There was uh, that entire again that entire exchange was there it was for the titillation of the audience and but, it was it got it'll have got a cheap odd, laugh in 1974 the thing is well to me yeah. just Guy Hamilton style that's yeah. just pure <laughs> Guy Hamilton at this point uh, the other thing I, I thought was a bit weird is like High Fat obviously knew Scaramanga was there because he was up the mountain there with him and then he's like the Bond's like what are you doing here Gary if you're in a suddenly notice the third nipple and he goes oh oh it's like how is he prepared for the I mean Maybe he knew Bond could approach there, but how did he know if Bond did approach his big compound that that Bond would be disguised as Scamang? It's like he instinctively knew how to pretend that he was meeting Scamanga for the first time, whereas the real Scamanga was, you know, up at his house. You know, it's like that somehow that that didn't really fit in. That it was just like 
let's just shove that in there for just to fill the audience for a, a few minutes. You know? Yeah, it's kind of lazy writing. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, there's a few instances of that in this film, I got to say. And again, that might stem from Tom Mankiewicz struggling with ideas and the sort of like the strife before the film. Oh, do you know, do you know, um, there's a bit I think is maybe the worst example of that. There's a couple of examples. See, when, um, when, now this is quite good because Bond goes to the Bottoms Up Club and you see Scaramanga leaning down from a window with his golden gun and you think he's aiming at Bond. I think Bond is kind of. Is Bond waiting for? He's just trying to find out where the how the bullets are transferred to Scaramanga. But the actual that guy Gibson, who's the scientist who's behind the Solex agitated, appears, and you think Scaramanga's aiming at him, but he shoots Bond. No, sorry, he shoots he shoots him. He doesn't shoot Bond. He shoots Gibson, Gibson. and then um, Lieutenant Hip appears. It turns out eventually Lieutenant Hip is part of MI six. But you're meant to think he tells Bond he's part of the Hong Kong police. Hong Kong police. He takes him off. Um, in a car, you'd think when they're in the car, he could maybe explain to them they're like, I'm part of MI6, I'm just going to take you to meet M, okay? But he doesn't do that. He takes them in a boat when they're well out of harm's way. And in the boat, they go along for maybe like pfft, half a mile on the water. He still, Bond says, let me see your ID. He still doesn't reveal who he is. He's just like, we're going to the new territories. And he doesn't reveal who he is. And then Bond jumps onto the ship. It's like, why couldn't Hip have told on the boat? Why couldn't he have just said, you know, I work for MI6? Why go through that whole charade, you know? It's it, just... it, when it was there purely, it's, it feels like it was purely to build up tension for the audience. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, the they were well, they were well out of harm's way. Why didn't he just tell him who he was? You know, what if Bond had tried to shoot Hip? It just, well, it was, it it's was, inexplicable, It was man. literally, yeah, it was just the whole, as Steve said there, just, it, it was building tension for the audience and I think yeah. when that happens in a film it takes me out of the movie because it reminds me that we're watching a film it's, a, it's almost a bit kind of meta like you you can you can see that characters are, are behaving in strange ways for the benefit of the audience does that make sense yes like I, I don't you know and, and that really kind of pulls me out of a um of a of the story it's, it's effectively because I start I think there are members of the audience it's different people watching the film are going to react in different ways but I think there are some people who will go along with it and there's other people who will not like being manipulated if you can I lose know. yourself in yeah. fiction then then yeah it's easy enough to kind of lose yourself in it I think I, I mean I admit I probably did but I, I can see where there's probably part of a brain where the realism complete if the realism's completely going, you start to go, hang on, why is he doing that? Why? Or you start thinking afterwards, why did he do that? It's kind of like it's the bit I mentioned in Young Live Twice, which I think was totally inexplicable when Miss Brandt takes him up in the, the plane to kill him. But I think another example right, so first of all, this take Mr. Bond to school, right? So they could have killed oh, him there and then. That was just oh. mad. And then, so it's like, take Mr. Bond to school. He wakes up in the karate school. He takes on this guy. He jumps out of the building. That's all That's all very well. But then Lieutenant Hip and his two nieces turn up and they take out an entire Jojo. <laughs> yeah. Jo- dojo. Do- they dojo, take out yeah. an entire dojo of, um, you know, the karate school. And, you know, with and he's like chatting to Bond while he's doing it. He's like, my nieces, their father works karate school. And then, he drives away, the two nieces jump in the back, there's plenty of time for Bond to get in. He doesn't even wait Why? one second for Bond to get into Why the car. Why just not get into the car? He just That's drives off that. and he leaves Bond. Well, that was the bit that became the kind of me. like a carry-on film at that point with yes. the music, and it was him running around, and it was just absurd. He jumped into the boat at that point, and that's where um, 
Sheriff Pepper turns yep. up. It seems yep. like that entire section was a setup, contrived. Yeah, very for the, contrived. The sergeant, for the the Sheriff Pepper section, yeah, which because, was completely unnecessary. So, yeah, uh-huh. so the the MI six agent refuses to pick up the other MI six agent in the car, and because of that, we have this massive deviation away. Yeah, we have this slide. Um, what is it? Sl- what what do you call that instrument? The or the the slide whistle. Yeah, slide the, whistle scene. Oh, the, the, car, the car goes. I mean, the, the stunt bridge, yeah. stunt was good, but they could have done that stunt. That car could have been the car that um, they were in uh, with the Kung Fu folk easily. And it could have cut out a good 20 minutes of rubbish, basically, couldn't it? If they had, if Bond had got in the car with them, um, is it Lieutenant Hip? And yeah. the two girls, yeah. yeah. Just to bring you up to speed, Mr. Barry, we were just, you can, you can always edit this out, obviously. Oh, we're, we're talking about, first of all, the absurdity of how Lieutenant Hip in the boat doesn't just reveal there and then who he is and and why Bond's there when Bond could have probably killed him or something and he only tells him once they're on the, the Queen Elizabeth. And also we're talking about just the, the whole absurdity of the karate school. You know, take Mr. Bond to school. Lieutenant <laughs> Hip and his two nieces take out an entire dojo of karate people, like 30, 40-odd people, while they're having a casual chat while they're doing it. So we're just talking about that and then that's leading into the whole... Okay. Um, the whole I almost called him Lieutenant Pepper, just to let you know, you guys are, a lot both, of names, yeah. are both guilty of I'm, calling him Sergeant I'm Pepper. I almost said definitely Sergeant, Sergeant, Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> the thing is, though, honestly, if Bond had been picked up by Lieutenant Hip in the car, we would have cut out 20 minutes of crap. Yeah. It that's was a, a whole section, because like you said earlier, Steve, like you said, um, Bond films have had the... The annoying habit of deteriorating towards the end, but this film it was like the midsection. I felt there was a there was a big. I mean, the parallels are similar to *Living Let Die*. That whole the boat section for me is one of the weakest points of *Living Let Die*. It just goes on so long. It's much worse than the the overly lengthy underwater stuff in *Thunderball*, um, which were least looked gorgeous. And uh, I think this one's even worse. This one is. Um, more egregious, I think, because the comedy that just doesn't work for me. It really doesn't. I find it irritating. <laughs> it feels like a carbon copy of Living Let Dead. I've always gone right. What was funny back in the other movie? Oh, the boat chase. Let's put that back in again mm-hmm. with exactly the same character who he happens to have bumped into away oh, from but, Louisiana I mean, in fucking Bangkok. That's probably the only thing that's remotely funny about it is the astronomical chances of Bond meeting this character twice. I know. Yeah, so he's on the just... boat, and then again, is that a car showroom? Yes. <laughs> It's like he just happens happens yeah. to be in Thailand, first of all. And he, Why while, is while Pepper he's... in there anyway? Why, what, is he going to buy a car in Thailand and leave <laughs> exactly, it? There? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> is it, on holiday, yeah. Why is he in Thailand, first of all? Secondly, why would he want to buy a car while he's in Thailand? Thirdly, what are the chances of two out of three? I think there's about four, four four and a half billion people in the world at that point or something. What are the, as Steve said, what are the chances of. I mean, I mean, it's, my I almost feel it's folly, it's folly to question this because this this is a film that is asking you not to to try and think about that. It is meant to be and fun, not only that, and so I feel the like chances it's silly. of meeting them in the midst of another speedboat chase. <laughs> I mean, the circumstances. Are I think just, they could. Uh, yeah, they could have got away with it. Maybe like the bit where um, I, I almost called him Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, the bit where go. Sheriff Pepper gets. You know, splash of the speedboat. Even if they just ended it there, that's fine. But the whole car showroom and he didn't need to the... come with Bond for that entire exactly. section. I don't oh, know. Right. I mean, they could have had the stunt without him. You know, does Pepper appear again in another film? No, I think he does. No, no, does he, he doesn't. No, I don't. I don't think you could have done that. I thought. I I, I'm thinking. I'm sure he had like a moment where he just gets like splashed, like or something. But maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking. See, I, I, I was sure there was a scene where Bond is in New York or something like that. 
in Pep, there's police and maybe it's other police I'm thinking of, but there's a scene where he gets arrested by American police or something. But it might be maybe he mentions Pepper. There's something. There's another. There's a, there's something coming. I'm sure. I, I thought maybe there's a double take that he does, but I might be thinking of the double taking pigeon that I'm sure is going to appear at some <laughs> yeah, point. That, um, I think that appeared. But, I would say like I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't just make myself out to be like Mr. Scrooge at this time you're not enjoy some of the, the funny aspects. I mean that you got to at least like raise a smell like Stephen um <laughs> I almost called him Sergeant Pepper and Sheriff Pepper um holds out his wallet to the Hong Kong police. It's like twelve pages of credentials yeah. come out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean some of it was like, these are my credentials. Yeah. No, they were they weren't Hong Kong police. I think it was uh, Thailand at that yeah, point. Yeah, sorry, I, I uh, there was a yeah, because we were saying during the film, I was, you know... Well, Hong Kong, what's interesting about it is that you would have thought that when Bond got picked up by the police in Hong Kong, it would have been okay because they were British. There's a British... At that time, there was a British police commissioner in Hong Kong. I just don't understand how Lieutenant Hip doesn't just tell him on the boat. Have we discussed the boat then? Or even yeah, in the have, car? Have, have I, I mean, it's, it's, it's in I mean, yeah, I'll just add him that up and say... <laughs> Too cartoonish wasn't for me. Um, the the stuff the the meeting on the boat. Um, it was mad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what have we talked about the theme song and the music in general? The theme song. First? Not quite. No. I mean, um, I mentioned it earlier, but yeah. yeah the, the theme song was. It was just. I mean, after the brilliance, it was live and let die. This. It was just so. It was basically explaining. The story. The 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 theme song was almost an integral part of the storyline because it kind of explained who Scaramanga was, and he's the man with the golden gun. He'll shoot everyone with his gun. <laughs> his big weapon. Yeah. It was um, just the way that it was explaining, almost explaining what was to come. I mean, it would have been funnier if it had gone on to say things like, and James Bond is looking for a solar cell, and the government don't want <laughs> to pay. will provide. Yeah, Sergeant Pepper will... Sheriff Pepper will <laughs> pop up again at some yeah. point. By the way, it it was it was actually it was horribly cheesy, and it, it didn't. Was. It was a messy song compositionally yes. as well. And in fact, it sounded better when they lifted out the melody and used it as a motif throughout the film. It was better than it was. That's true. I thought that song. sounded really good. Yeah, I got. I got to say, I, I kind of disagree. You know, um, I I do. Not allowed. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> There's going to come a point. You know, we're not all going to totally agree. I, I I do really enjoy the song. And again, but maybe that's because I saw this film from a young age. You know. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's points where after the film, I could hear myself humming it, and it was a bit catchy. Yeah, yeah. so catchy. Yeah, no, no, so no, no, catchy. No. It was the motif that yes. we were humming, yeah. not the songs, because the song yeah. itself was messy. And can I just say, John Barry's score through the film's phenomenal. Wait, I enjoy especially the slide I enjoyed George Martin's no. score. <laughs> no, not not the pe- the penny whistle I've heard described as, a, but I enjoyed George Martin's score in Living Like Die. It brought something fresh. I, I, but we miss John Barry, I think, to some degree. I really enjoyed his score. This is one of his... It's funny that John Barry wasn't so proud of this because I, I found this a, there a was... very strong score and I, I liked the continual repetition of the song. Really catchy melody. He used the Bond theme well. And the I think especially see the... The um the particular tracks he used for first of all like the initial um duel Scaramanga had with the gangster and then the the latter duel they had with Bond I thought the tension especially the latter one with Bond I thought it was just a beautiful theme I, Actually, I think it's a what? beautiful soundtrack um, I'm not going to say I kind that. of agree with you in the sense that John Barry's not responsible for the full composition of the theme song is he uh, No he did Steve right. did the theme because 
Well, maybe that's the problem because John Barry's scoring. Um, there's a big difference between scoring classical music for a, for a movie and then doing a song like a, a, a theme song, and I think that his idea for the theme that you hear in the actual film itself is good, and it's nice and it's pleasant. It's definitely a good a good motif and a good theme. I like I liked it and I was finding myself humming it, but the song that was written with the lyrics that were written and the singing. Wasn't that wasn't the, the lyrics was was who was was it Don Black Lulu 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 I did the singing and who did the lyrics It was Don Black, Don Black I, yeah. I honestly feel that's like where I the, can... that's where it dips I mean really my problem is the only problem I have is the the main theme section uh, the rest of the music in the film was fine apart from the carry on bit where it sounded a bit too kind of upbeat and it was and very funny. light yeah and, um, undercuts of the other, pedal like other than that I I thought it was a good score yeah i the, feel like the yeah. bond theme where he arrived in macau and met the the bullet maker was that that kind of slightly oriental turn on the bond theme was nice yes. i like that that yeah. was really nice i think as well that one of the strengths of the film as well is i think it's quite well done the way in which it it's um it's signified that scaramanga was after bond from the outset and that he targeted bond for assassination and he sent this bullet to intimidate him as the, the mi6 personnel in the office are, are saying but it turned out it was actually Miss Anders it was all a, and it only became apparent maybe like two thirds of the film she wanted out of this lifestyle with Scaramanga she hated him she wanted Bond to set her free she did all this she faked Scaramanga's fingerprint and she sent this to Bond and that completely tore Bond out of the the universe of the the whole um, mission he was on, and he had to basically drop everything he was doing to to target someone who wasn't even after him in the first place. And the whole thing you saw it when Bond met Scaramanga at the the boxing ring. Scaramanga wasn't even after Bond, and he respected Bond. He liked Bond, you know. He, this um, he didn't want to kill Bond. Ultimately, I think he did. Ultimately, his um, his mission in life was to kill his alter ego, who was James Bond. And he got the chance to pit his wits against Bond, but he didn't. He never really wanted Bond to die. He, he had an adoration of Bond, even, which that that is to me that really brings the film up a notch. I think he's almost like an old school trophy hunter. These these utter morons, I have to add, who <laughs> go into who pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to go into jungles or whatever to stalk incredible animals like elephants or giraffes, whatever, for a few days and then kill them. Scaramanga. Bond to Scaramanga is one of those one of those sort of trophies, and I, think it, so. I get the impression that that's, that's what he wanted. Yeah. yeah, and it's like us, like I said, the whole. Um... I thought we said Scaramanga was an animal lover. Well, no, no, you missed the point. No, <laughs> no, that was. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I think that's again, like that's why that Scaramanga <laughs> said is so rude. Just for context, Steve didn't mean I missed the point. He means I was out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> just for people who weren't, yeah. weren't aware, that sounded so brutal there. But I, 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 I missed just the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I really, <laughs> can't, can't Thanks, say man. it often enough. Just, I just adore the idea of. Scaramanga been Bond's alter ego and it's the fact Christopher Lee was Ian Fleming's cousin and the whole he's not he doesn't only like Bond he's fucking obsessed with Bond he's a he's a he's a waxwork with the exact likeness he of looked, Bond he in looked. his house and yeah. even even since like see when he's with Miss Anders you know it's like he doesn't fully appreciate her it's almost like when he's with her it's like he's thinking of Bond you know like that's his well that's ultimate, the thing see um you know, uh is Miss Anders the that is that model? Yeah, so she I think fell in love with the idea of Bond through what Scaramanga had said, 
So that's an interesting. Could you even ah. say like, see if you go back to Tracy and on Her Majesty's, is even a sense of like her it's setting bond, bond setting her free from her predicament. Now, if you imagine that Scaramanga's ultimate pleasure is killing, then there's an almost kind of an intimate thing going on with Bond there, in the sense that Bond is the only one who understands. And when they're at dinner, he yeah, says, "We are completely. here's to us, Bond." He's not. There's a, um, a good nights at the table. He's not interested in her. Yeah, you know it's it's about him and Bond. I think Scaramanga may have yeah. actually homoerotic relationship. I, I, yeah, I, I think Scaramanga <laughs> may have actually had complex uh, motivations and feelings for Bond. I don't go along with anything like homoerotic there, but I think that is a really great bit of dialogue. I think it's more of a nuanced kind of subtle. Dinner. I think it's nothing. The, the film's intentionally well, it, it doing that. But I think it's more about the the. It doesn't have to be sexual. It's an I think, admiration. I, think it's I see where you're going but, with that. Yeah, I, that's what I'm trying to... But yeah. I think Scaramanga gets a sexual satisfaction from killing. And I think that that's what ties into the intimacy there. I think yeah, that yeah. He wants to... under. If Bond... He, he keeps saying to Bond, you feel the same as me. You, you understand what it's like to kill. I think he wants to meet someone who gets the same satisfaction from killing that yeah, would, would be a partner. Yeah. And you don't see Christopher Lee's character smile any time up until he has Bond in his company at the end when he's showing off and, and sort of it's apart like, he from, looks giddy. Apart yeah. from that amazing scene that he shoots High Fat, which High Fat's sitting there slagging him off. He's like um, saying, remember you work for me. Bond's not seen you be seen me he's like, you know he's sitting there absolutely tearing Scaramanga to shreds he doesn't even have a clue Scaramanga's gradually assembling the golden gun and Scaramanga just raises it to me and goes that's no problem and he shoots him that is for me that's a killer scene yeah, yeah. this is yeah. this is the thing with this film it has many high points and unfortunately a fair few low points so it is kind of all over the place in that respect is there anything else you guys want to discuss before we get to the rating there's always something I come I would, off and go, oh, yeah. I wish I'd said that. I would but. say, like, because I know Roger gets quite a bit of flack for his performance in this film. I did like him a lot in this film. I think he does show kind of some of the darker sides. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you saw, well, yeah, you might want to go into, obviously, you know, apparently, now I did read a bit of Roger's autobiography, which um, my big brother got as a Christmas present. I've had a sneak peek at so far looking for, you know, a few tidbits for a man with a golden gun. And he did say the scene where he um, he hits Miss Anders once and he's about to hit her again, that Roger wasn't really comfortable doing that. That was Guy Hamilton's idea. But he did it, and, uh, and apparently Guy Hamilton wanted to show the tougher side of Bond. Now, also, bits I, I, where I people to, may I have not... to say, Gordon, I, I fully agree that that should be shown because a secret agent on a mission would use brutal force against anyone that had information they needed and we've seen that in the Bond novels and I think it's yeah. something that's not shown enough in the books and also I think there is darker uh, the sides movie, sorry. there's darker bits that the Roger shows in that I think it's maybe how quickly he resorts to violence is maybe sometimes alarming it didn't feel like it was ah, but this is a guy who has a license to kill who literally shoots people to death all but, the time yeah, and I was Bond good. resorts to violence constantly no I, I'm not it's I'm not saying this, I have a major issue with it it's just sometimes visually it can be a bit striking when it's kind of out of nowhere like it seemed kind of like it came out of nowhere but, but that, that's the bond the character i get the, that's the I bond get, of the books isn't i it? get the character the guy hamilton wanted to show the character so yeah i mean there's literally People, bits in the books um, where it talks about how bond switches from charming and affable to cold-blooded killer because you know? people say that roger didn't show a ruthless side until fear eyes only when they kicked the car off the cliff but there was even there was there was some subtler elements in the film that we watched this afternoon that 
you know, even even when he had the ca- the conversation with Scaramanga at the dinner table, he he did say these lines with a bit more venom than usual. It's like when when I kill, it's under specific orders from my government. And he's like, those who I kill are themselves killers. You know, he's really getting to the root of who Bond is there. It's actually bringing him back to the Bond of the books just for a few seconds. And it almost and that... feels like Bond is like Dexter. Like, the whole Dexter the TV show, the idea of a serial killer who only killed those who were bad. Do you know what I mean? In a sense, an MI6 agent is that, but sanctioned by the government. They are a serial yeah. killer who tar- who is targeting people who are bad. And with that, Fran, you go from that to when he's about to take the car over the bridge and he goes, I sure am, boy. That is just the, like that. To compare that with the scene at the dinner table where he's having quite a serious conversation with Scaramanga, that maybe sums up this this whole film quite well, to go from that to that. But then again, people are complicated. I mean, like, I mean, even the most evil people in the world like jokes or like animals or have a laugh sometimes or whatever do you know what i mean like they, they don't just walk around constantly 100 percent of the time being evil and, and good people aren't permanently good so yeah i mean i get it but like i, I kind of like the idea that you can see uh, it would have been nicer to see that kind of range in other characters in this film yeah i like ranging characters i i, I totally get where you're coming from i think another thing that's often overlooked with this film is it's not got a, an absolutely crazy megalomaniac plot. I think that Scaramanga is kind of like an underworld character and I, I don't know about the whole thing that this little device could harness the power of the sun and a guy's willing to hand over to someone else just in some bar, you know, considering how important it is. So, right, maybe forget that but, you know, I think it's one of these plots you need, like I keep saying, man, you need these sort of films every so often. The Bond franchise, you know, there's some elements that are more in the spy world. Bring it down to earth. Let's not always have a you know a big megalomaniac plot every single film. In some ways, and you know, I can't believe we've not even mentioned. It. I mean, what what about Nick Knack? Nick Knack played by her Vilish is is Scaramanga's man servant and like kind of does looks after him in the island. I mean, what what's our thoughts on Nick Knack? I was gonna. Well, he's very dedicated. That even after the organization is destroyed, he would still fight. And yeah, I know. It just keeps happening. And also, I think, you know, we go through this range with Bond characters as well. Um, Something unusual, something to freshen up. You know, we were talking about Went and Kids. We were talking about, you know, um, I mean, well, even Odd Job, yeah. you know, at that point as well. Like, but, you know, this kind, this dwarf character, but he's he's still kind of, there's a darkness to him even. There's a, there's something, it's something that freshens it up, I think. But it is an example of where the film was dated that the, the yeah. sort of manservant or sort of subservient person has to have some kind of something that would be considered wrong with him in this case uh, yeah it was a dwarf there, there wasn't really any reason given for that there wasn't that wasn't particularly necessary but it was obviously uh a judgment call by the makers of the film to go yes. right, let's so, make this character a funny looking dwarf yeah yeah but yeah, yeah i mean i'm but what i'm saying though is i'm commending his acting as well because i think no, he, it's good absolutely it's good for him as well he got an opportunity in the bond film he it's a fantastic yeah, thing but you yeah. know that the right the writers and producers that have made decisions there's a reason behind it, and you get yeah. the feeling the reason is a little more um, yeah, I get where you're, I, awkward. Yeah, I totally than, get where you're yeah. from. Yeah, like it's not in in the best intentions as I think as I think it would be now. But, but I think he kind of he, he kinda, is good in it, and he is yeah. uh, he is a good addition to the film. I guess what I was you know trying to say as well is like Christopher Lee, he really owns a lot of those scenes. You know, he's you know he does. He's he in brings, as an actor, he's brilliant. He he plays the character really well. He's 
it was somehow sort of menacing and then sort of in a way comical at the same time. But I mean, the at the the Thai boxing thing, for example, where he's sort of standing behind Bond with a gun, eating a bag of peanuts. It's it works really well. I thought he was actually it was really good. But you can see there was there was obviously a selection process behind why he was picked, and there are there will be reasons for that which perhaps wouldn't be put up with. Well, it's the same reason. It's the exact same reason. In a, in a sense to why it's always absolutely gorgeous glamour models that are chosen to be the sidekicks of Bond and, yes. and or whatever because there's an audience expectation and things like that um, so yeah it's it's the, the times I suppose but yeah. I don't know I think even these days like even now in this current time I think most like if you're going to have a film I mean let's, is there any ma- uh, morbidly obese Marvel superheroes today? Uh, with disabilities or anything like that? Not really. Yeah, I mean, you might you might get a couple. Well, there we go. That's, but like, that's exactly. But, but, but the thing is, though, is it realistic to assume that someone who's trained to work in a, a, a as a, a trained killer is going to have a disability or um, have some sort of trouble moving around the place or have uh, high cholesterol? Not really. And bear in mind as well that all most of the the characters that play. Um, any of them, whether whoever they are, tend to be very attractive. I mean, I'd say Roger Moore's a pretty attractive guy. And and like Sean Connery takes his top off, he looks pretty good. So I think there is an expectation that when you go and see a Hollywood movie, you're going to see a star and they're going to be beautiful people. I think that's that, just that, something. I have, that, I have no issue with that. You know, that's that's fine. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I I I just to me that's a given. Like, I get that I'm going to look at the men in the film and I'm going to think, God damn, I wish I looked as good as that. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's just a fact of life to me. I think yeah. The only thing is, uh, I feel like we're treading it all the time. It's just the fact that. They're always so much younger. They're always like nineteen years old. These oh, women, yeah, and well, they're not Roger Moore's forty-seven at this point. And well, I think it gets really unreal. Money Penny is the same films. age. The actress is the same age as him. They would never have an actress her age in the roles that they'd give to these. That's yeah. that's what I'm well, trying they to say. Did it? They did it? I kind of did it with um, Maud um, again when she came back in Octopussy. She was a wee bit older and maybe suited. Um, oh, the twenty-five then or something. No, yeah, no. I should, was, yeah, no. I mean, she was a similar age to Nora. Yeah. Well, no, maybe a bit. Well, a bit younger. I mean, he was. Yeah. I think but, she was maybe all right, we'll thirty-five to forty, and Moore was in his fifties. So there was a bit more of a kind of a. It was a bit more realistic. In a view to a kill, it was very unrealistic the oh, way God. that it was because Moore was practically like a pensioner and, and uh, there was these young young women there i do think it's a bit strange i do th- i do think it's odd that you have women who are just coming out of their teens with men who are in their 40s and things like that i, d- I just think it's it's something that maybe wouldn't fly nowadays okay i i, I yeah. think we all know that but i think bond and probably all movies have gotten a bit better with that i think it was more acceptable in the past than it's it is becoming today. a bit more better i think now but Let's let's move on to the rating then. I think we've kind of covered mostly all we want to discuss. Um, if there's anything else you can mention in the rating review, uh, Fran, you want to go first on this one? Oh damn it! Do you know what? I, I always don't want to. But, uh, did you know? I this? feel like the first person sets the like, tone, and I'm never sure myself. I do never go first. <laughs> I went first once. See, the thing is, like, I, 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 <laughs> I was, don't know. I was actually you. thinking earlier on. I was thinking, well, do you want least... me to skip past it? No, no, but. I'll... I'll just have to do it but it's quite funny because I was thinking at the start of this when we were starting to record it I thought well at least the chances are I'll get to hear what everybody else thinks and then I can decide right because because I was thinking well I don't really know but I'm going to have to be the guy that does this there's a lot of responsibility on my shoulders here Um, I think really and again I wish we had a more precise 
scoring system for these films because there's 20 plus of them. But it's it's kind of got to be a three, I think, because it's not... It's, it's above average. It's a low three. It's like a 3.0, basically. Like, it, it, that's what it is for me. It's just hit a three. It's, um, it does what, it's lost the two stars for all the reasons we've discussed, and it's gained the three. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I, I don't want to retread yeah, yeah, the same yeah. thing over and over again. Um, but it's not perfect. It's not terrible. It's good. It's, it's good. It's, it's a watchable film. I'd watch it again. Okay. Uh, Gordon, then, you want to go next? Yep, for me it's a high three. I think it's a version of four actually. And <sighs> Roger gets a lot of criticism in this film. I love him in this film, I've got to say. I think some of his dialogue is. It makes me laugh. I like some of his throwaway lines. Like, he must have found me a little bit titillating and he throws away the third nipple, you know. But he showed, like I said, he has a darker side you see in this film as well. But for me, like we were saying, Christopher Lee owns this film, man. Christopher Lee. Um, this obsession with Bond, he's essentially Bond's alter ego, and it's like everything he's done in his life is like building to a big showdown between him and Bond. I absolutely love that. I think Knickknack's a good henchman. M and Q, great performance as well. Great to see Desmond Llewellyn back and Money Penny. John Barry's music. I th- for th- this is like one of his real tour de forces in music soundtracks. I really love Barry's music. We missed him. You could kind of say in Live and Let Die as much as I love George Martin. I found this a very atmospheric film. The whole um, the showdown that Scaramanga has with the gangster at the start and then Bond at the end is very atmospheric. I still think the sets were, were great. The music tied in magnificently. I feel that the the middle part of the film it deteriorated a bit, but that unlike a lot of other Bond films, like I said, it did kind of, sort of redeem itself towards the end when Scaramanga's character developed a bit and it just culminated in this thing between him and Bond and it's like for me even if you go back if you're a Bond reading the early the Bond books before there's even films this kind of Bond is sort of an assassin in a sense as well but he's working inside the government you felt that this is something brewing like Bond meeting a guy who's like the sort of polar opposite of him he's like similar in a sense but he's He's on the dark side. I feel was building something like that. And this, I think the franchise needed that. There is a lot of things that drag this film down. I think there's there's a lot of unnecessary comedy. I wouldn't have put um, <laughs> Sheriff Pepper in at all. I think you could have maybe got away with it, maybe get splashed into the boat, but you know that. I thought it was unnecessary. I thought like Lieutenant Hip was all right, but a lot of the, the, the ridiculous scenes kind of revolved around him, like him and his nieces with the karate school. It just wasn't necessary. Um, the whole thing took me out of the film again. The thing in the boat, him not even explaining who he was again. I agree with what you're saying about Miss Goodnight as well. She was a um a character in the book, which you know again could have been developed further in the film. I think they missed an opportunity there, and could have even been a recurring character. We never really got a lot of recurring um themes until the Daniel Craig era, and yeah, the mid part of the film lets it down quite a bit. I think it's close to being a four. I think. I disagree with a lot of the the bashers of Roger Moore during this era, and I think he does really well. But I think I think Christopher Lee makes this film in a lot of ways, and I think it's it's almost a four, but it's uh, it's like a th- maybe like three point five if we're getting to half marks. 
Steve, you want to go next? Yeah, for me, this is a straight down the line three. To be honest, it didn't. It was a good film, but it didn't blow me away. It didn't. I didn't come away feeling as enthused as perhaps I have with one or two of the other films. As Gordon absolutely said, it's Christopher Lee's Scaramanga that pretty much makes this film. That character was absolutely brilliant. It's just it's it is a massive shame that Britt Eklund's Britt Eklund's um Goodnight let it down, and I, I, that's not a, a criticism of her. I think it's the way that character was written. It's the dialogue. It's the way a lot of those lines were delivered. She sounded like the the sort of typical ditzy blonde, and I thought that that really let it down. But the film it looked great. Um, the stuff. Uh, Scaramanga's lair, the interior and the exterior stuff. I have to say, Thailand looked fantastic. Those islands yeah. always look amazing, no matter where they're used, and they're actually used really well as a kind of villain's hideouts in this particular film. Um, I, I love the the car stunt, the three sixty. That classic it was great to see that in action. Um, unfortunately, it was with a lot of the JW Pepper stuff, which again was kind of it was it was clearly thrown in there for comedic value was unnecessary and kind of brought the film down so it's i'm completely this is kind of my complete middle of the roads it didn't blow me away but it was good Uh, the storyline was nice simple easy to follow made sense to a certain extent It, it made bond sense Yes, exactly. There, there wasn't any, and a, and a Guy Hamilton film of it as well. Which yeah, is actually... there weren't any massive. It didn't veer off at any point. There was no point where I was sitting watching it, going, "I don't understand what's going on here," or something's got confused. So yeah, this for me is just a, a straight middle of the road three out of five. Okay. Uh, yeah, I agree as well. It's a three for me. Um, there was points where I was toying with a two, but I I don't think I would go as far as that because I gave Diamonds Are Forever a two and it is a better film. Yeah. This film had an amazing villain, probably up there with Goldfinger as one of the best we've seen so far. Um, the actual relationship between uh, Bond and Scaramanga was just as well developed as the relationship between Bond and Goldfinger. Um and I like that. I like the idea of a villain who was just as deadly uh, to Bond as any of the henchmen he could have easily. In fact, well, I didn't really have many henchmen. It was it was it was himself who was the the real threat. Two that, people working in his mm-hmm. island. Yeah. So that 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 was that was something new. That was something this film did that was really um, for it, for its main strength, as I've said, and. You know, so that that was the the first third and the the final third really where that that came through. And I think the middle section we've mentioned it already let it down so badly. The comedy came through at this point, um, and Sheriff Pepper and the the this the good night stuff. It's just that car chase stunt, Steve. You mentioned as well. It was unfortunate that they kind of even ruined that a little by having the little silly sound effect to kind of take away the yep. the, the how epic that's that that actual. Um, stunt was um, music overall I liked apart from the main theme um, uh, and yeah so I liked mostly how it was used that they used the Bond theme with a sort of kind of more quietened down and somber kind of sound to it I liked that so some stylistic flourishes there was production elements that there was moments we noticed when we were watching it it was you know, one of the conversations they had and the actual shot went bloody and then there was a line that was missed because there was people clapping and things like yeah. that. So stuff like that, that, that even like tiny things like 
after the main title theme, it just cut straight to a door opening and Bond walking through the door. It felt like it missed the, that. Normally, films have a um, establishing. establishing shot where it shows you, um, you know, MI six, whatever, or something to show you where here's where we're going to show you. Um, so things like that, just little production elements that weren't quite there. I think Guy Hamilton kind of dropped the ball in those respects. And again, with the writing and the comedic stuff, as we've well talked about. Overall, I would give it a free, a low free probably for me, but it's still a free. So, yes, that's the man with the golden gun. I would say as well. I mean, Christopher Lee and not Sir Christopher Lee, another um, you know, great um legend of the the Bond alumni that's sadly been taken from us and such an amazing career. You could really buy into his character, and for me, it was just you even noticed when he was showing Bond around the island this respect he had for even just the. The dialogue, the way he said it, it just you notice this real respect for Bond. Well, it was it was somehow better than the way the the third version of Blofeld did it, um, yeah. in that Diamonds Are Forever, where we were just. I mean, I think it was because we were expecting the tension to be there between the two characters, which wasn't. But somehow it was fine for this. Um, it made some sense actually in this film, which was again much much appreciated. Did you ever hear? I know he did a lot of really varied things. Did you ever hear Christopher Lee's? Christmas heavy metal album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. While we're in, while we're in, still in the Christmas them, period. He did two of them. Yeah. yeah. I did a big thing recently. I, I I read a lot about Christopher Lee for some reason. I was um I can't remember how I got onto it, but I watched documentaries about him. I saw clips of him and was reading articles about him and all sorts of stuff. And the Christmas albums came up, but there was loads of other stuff like he's fluent and he can read um Mordor language from Lord of the Rings fluently. Um uh-huh. and other languages as well. Uh, he collects patches and various th- uh, insignia and weapons from World War Two. They're extremely rare. There was quite a cool video of him being presented with something that he'd been looking for for years, and he just he was beside himself. It was an old man being presented with this thing that he, he couldn't find, and he's a really interesting guy. I mean, I I I think the three stars I gave the film at least a star and a half had to be. Because of the performance, I I completely agree on that. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He made the film. If it wasn't for him, it would be at least a two, um, probably. Okay, I think we're good to finish up on that. This is going to be quite a lot lengthy one. Uh, what are you talking about? You're looking at me <laughs> when you said that. Another hour of talking today. Uh, our next film is going to be the Spy Who Loved Me. So this will be an interesting one. This is one of the ones that's known for what probably seen as Roger Moore's best, or at least. Uh, it's kind of it's one of his favourites as well, so um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We'll get that arranged in the new year. So we'll see you guys in, in like three days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as if it sounds like it's miles away. <laughs> yeah, see you guys in 2020. Bye bye. Have a happy new year. Bye bye. bye, bye.